Hey, well, welcome. Uh, you are in the straight and narrow clarity on homosexuality, the church, and the Christian, just in case you're wondering. I know there were some people in here who thought they were in a different um, workshop, which is right around the corner from us, uh, but that's the workshop that you're sitting in on now. So if you stay, that's what you're going to get. Um, my name's Chris Kovac. I'm from West Highland Baptist Church, and I've been asked to introduce uh, our speaker for today. Uh, before I do, I was just asked to remind everybody that um, just to bring water into the, uh, the sanctuary here. So if you have pop, uh, if you can go outside and guzzle it and throw it in the, or just leave it out there until you're, just to avoid spills and that sort of thing. So John, this was a topic that I really um, resonated with me. I mean, we run into this in our culture, uh, you know, it's it's increasing in, in its uh, tenor and in the number of people that you meet who um, know somebody who is uh, in the GLBT community or there's connections, so um, this really resonated with me and I'm, I'm glad to be here. So John is the founding pastor of New City Baptist Church, which is a downtown Toronto church. Uh, he has active ministry in Toronto's gay community and uh, writes about it as a, as a blogger. Uh, he asked me to tell you that he's, um, he's a handsome devil. I don't know if you said devil, though, but uh, he's also a musician, I understand. You play drums, and, and you're also working on a screenplay, which uh, is very exciting. So give a warm welcome to, uh, to John. Well, hello, everyone. <clears throat> As I was just introduced, my name is John Bell. I'm the pastor at New City Baptist Church. Uh, we meet at Bloor and Christie, downtown Toronto, and I've been intentionally proclaiming the gospel to gay men uh, for about eight years now. And, and I've lived in the environs of the gay village for about the same amount of time uh, in the apartment building where my wife and I live. Uh, just on our floor, six of our nine neighbors are gay. And that's typical of each floor in our building. Uh, I, I certainly wasn't looking for it, uh, but in God's providence, my world and the LGBT community have intersected. And I'm, I'm very thankful to God for it. But this means biblical clarity on homosexuality, Christian love toward the LGBT community, bold Christian witness. Uh, these are our daily concerns for me. And I'd love to speak to some of you of my experiences and how I've, I've seen the Lord work in the last years. Uh, please feel free to, to buttonhole me uh, today or tomorrow uh, when we have a break. Or if you, if you live in Toronto, uh, I'd be happy to meet with you for a coffee. Uh, my contact info is on the, on the handout that I gave out. Uh, my talk today is going to take the full 45, 50 minutes. Uh, but uh, we don't need to take a break, or I don't need to anyway. Um, if you're welcome to leave after I'm done, uh, but uh, it, staying here, having a time of Q&A, some discussion, I'm all for that. So um, my talk today isn't about gay evangelism, uh, not specifically at least, uh, nor is this breakout session about giving loving biblical counsel to those in our churches who are struggling with same-sex attraction or what to say to friends or loved ones when they come out of the closet and, and have embraced the gay lifestyle. <clears throat> uh, what, what does love for our neighbor look like in that kind of situation? Those are all very important questions. 
Uh, and the church needs to be talking about that, and we need to be living out biblical truth. But in one sense, I think all of that is putting the cart before the horse. I want to put to you a thesis, and uh, this being a gospel coalition conference, and uh, the fact that each of you paid $100 to attend, uh, I feel safe in making some sweeping generalizations, uh, but I'm going to assume that almost all of us know that God, in his word, the Bible, uh, forbids homosexual behavior and relationships. I'm also going to assume that we're convinced, or at least we're almost certain, that homosexual behavior is sin. God reveals it to be sin in his word, and we believe it. Again, in a different context, I would never presume such a thing. But I believe very few Christians can precisely say, theologically, why God forbids homosexual behavior and relationships. And that applies to heterosexual sexual sin as well. This might be uh, an interesting experiment. Ask yourself, or ask a member of your church, why is sex to be enjoyed only within the marital union of one man to one woman? And the answer has to go beyond because God says so. Why is fornication sin, according to Scripture? Why is adultery sin, according to Scripture? I submit that most Christians can't answer those questions. Is that a fair generalization? Brothers and sisters, that's a dangerous place to be. It's dangerous, first, because theological ignorance tends to breed moralistic reactionaries. I'm talking about Christians who respond with lots of heat to issues related to sexual morality, but with very little biblical light. And a lack of knowledge mixed with merely moralistic prejudice, and that's really what it is, uh, is never a good combination. That's all, that always spells disaster. Second, theological ignorance on this front sets Christians up for cultural accommodation. We see this again and again experientially. If the theological underpinnings aren't there, when the time comes to make a, a faithful yet costly decision, we'll compromise. Individual Christians, local churches, whole denominations compromise. What did the serpent say to Eve in the garden? Did God really say? Uh, now, I'm not addressing this issue directly today, but perhaps there's someone here, I wouldn't be surprised at all, struggling with same-sex attraction. Friend, the desire to be happy, to enjoy love, to be accepted, to experience sexual intimacy, to enjoy a family, to live authentically as God made me. Those desires can be so strong that domesticating the scriptures to suit your needs can actually be seen as a good thing, the right thing, the noble thing. Did God really say 
So what I want to do in this breakout session is examine the theological and salvation historical underpinnings to God's opposition to homosexual behavior and relationships. I believe our churches need to take dramatic steps towards doctrinal clarity on these issues. The average Christian needs to understand God's word better. Good teaching leads to good living. And the preachers and teachers in the church need to feed the sheep. So we're going to look at Romans chapter 1, the most detailed and significant treatment of homosexuality in the Bible. I hope you brought your thinking caps, because this text is theological stake. And, and I'm afraid that's about all we're going to have time for today. I originally intended to move beyond this text and look at some complementary teachings, but we don't have time, at least not in depth. And, and that's unfortunate, uh, because Christians need more than just a thorough understanding of Romans chapter 1 if we're going to understand biblical sexuality. I want this to move beyond homosexuality, biblical sexuality. Uh, if you look at your handout sheet, step number two, there is great need in the church for better teaching and church discipline, both formative and corrective, on various complementary doctrinal issues. All right? Marriage, divorce and remarriage, celibacy, sexual relations within marriage, one flesh union and sexual sin, church membership, church discipline, the authority of scripture. All these issues are related, and together they provide the church with a robust, whole Bible understanding of human sexuality. So let me make a quick appeal to any preachers with us today. Uh, brothers, why not make one of your sermon series for 2016 uh, Biblical Sexuality? and exegete these texts, all of them. Because, uh, brothers, just allow me to speak freely. Uh, you need to be certain that your people, your flock, has been taught what human marriage is, what it represents. Be sure, brother, that your flock knows and believes Jesus and Paul's teaching on divorce and remarriage, and how the very, very specific divorce exceptions are high walls guarding precious gospel treasure. I would ask, is membership meaningful in your church? And do you practice church discipline, which seeks repentance and restoration? Pastor, if a member of your church pursues an unbiblical divorce... Do they get more than a stern talking to and the shedding of your tears? How can the church presume to have any sort of integrity in affirming the sanctity of marriage in our culture if we compromise on divorce? And we have been for decades. Pastors, are your people theologically equipped and able to respond with more than just conservative religious prejudice to issues such as adultery and fornication. What do we read in 1 Corinthians 6? The physical bodies of Christians 
are the limbs and organs of Jesus Christ himself. And we learn in Genesis 2.24 that sexual intercourse unites two human beings in a one flesh bond. That means a Christian having sexual intercourse with someone who is not their spouse has the unconscionable result of involving Jesus' body in a sinful act. It unites the body parts of Christ with that person, 1 Corinthians 6. Therefore, Christians must flee from sexual immorality. Is that theology understood in your church? Celibacy, 1 Corinthians 7. Sexual relations within marriage, 1 Corinthians 7. The authority of Scripture. It all comes back to the authority of Scripture. All Christians need to be aspiring theologians, right? Not just the pastors. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, to any pastors or teachers here today, I want to leave step number two in your hands. Preach those texts, brother. Or, if you're not a teacher in the church, ask your pastor to preach them. You'll forgive me for being so free with my advice and how to run your church, but this is a package deal. This is biblical sexuality. And, and hear me now, to preach Romans 1 with thunder and lightning, but never touch a divorce text with a 10-foot pole or any of the texts listed in step number two, to my thinking, is church-sanctioned homophobia. It's hypocrisy of the grossest sort. So it's countering that spirit. We now turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. This is quite a complex text. Uh, The argumentation is close, verse upon verse, and the theology is dense, and it's connected to all sorts of other biblical teachings. And let me acknowledge at the outset my, my plagiarizing indebtedness to Douglas J. Moo's excellent Romans commentary. I've listed it there in your handout. Uh, I owe most of my understanding of this text from him, and a lot of what you'll be hearing this morning is sort of repackaged Doug Moo. I've never had an original theological thought in my life. Now, <clears throat> Paul's discussion of homosexuality in Romans 1 occurs in a very specific context, a context of universal idolatry and accountability toward God. And the revelation of God's present wrath against all who suppress the truth of God by their wickedness, gay and straight alike, who are all without excuse. So as we approach this question of how do we bring theological clarity to the church on this issue of biblical sexuality, we need to first understand it doesn't matter if we're as straight as the day is long. If we are a human being made in the image and likeness of God, we are an idolater. And this text is about us. It's about all of us, no matter your sexuality. And it's within this context, the universality of human sin, universal human accountability, the present revelation of God's wrath against the sin of all humanity, that Paul treats homosexual sin. I'm sure you're well acquainted with the text, but let's read it together. 
Romans 1.18, I'm using the NIV. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Every person knows about God because God has revealed himself to a limited extent in creation itself. God's existence, God's eternal power, those things are plain to all people and have been since the creation of the world in every generation because God has made it plain. Every human mind clearly perceives that there must be a creator, that he exists, that he is powerful, that he alone must be worshipped. Your atheistic university prof knows that for a fact. And yet, every person turns away from God. Every person, without exception, deliberately suppresses that truth with their wickedness. Uh, If we hold a volleyball under the water and then let it go, what happens? The natural action for the ball is to pop to the surface. And if we want to keep the ball under the water, we have to suppress it, right? We have to use our strength and suppress it. We have to actively force it under the water. And what the Apostle Paul is teaching is that God's wrath is presently being revealed from heaven. Not just in hell on the last day. It's presently being revealed from heaven. Why? Because people, all people, not just the really bad ones, all people, unrighteously suppress the truth and reject that the one true God should be honored and worshipped and esteemed as God. And whenever that truth begins to exert itself, whenever that truth makes us feel uneasy in our moral nature, we hold it down, we suppress it with more and more wickedness. Therefore, every person is without excuse. Therefore, God is fair to judge every person on this planet with his wrath. So let me say to all the straight, conservative, Bible-believing Christians in this room, if we read Romans 1, 18 to 32, and we see only the Ellen DeGeneres and Bruce Jenners of the world and not ourselves, we've misunderstood the context badly. Every person is without excuse because we all have been given a knowledge of God, but we have spurned that knowledge in favor of idolatry 
in all its varied forms. We all have exchanged God and his glory for something else. Although they claimed to be wise, verse 22, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And what's God's reaction to this idolatrous behavior? As Carson reminds us, the Bible tells us elsewhere that ultimately we will see God's reaction to the sin of his idolatrous image bearers on Judgment Day, a day when divine judgment will be executed with eternal finality. But as we see in verse 18, there is also a preparatory, anticipatory, temporal revelation of God's wrath revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of humanity. Instead of uh, rebuking people in remedial, corrective judgment, such as when uh, God beat idolatry out of Israel through their 70-year Babylonian captivity, or by sending another flood, like in the days of Noah, when he wiped the wicked off the face of the earth. Instead, God's wrath is presently being revealed from heaven against sin by giving human beings over to their sinful desires, to shameful lusts, verse 26, a depraved mind, verse 28. Do you see how that works? God's wrath is presently being revealed from heaven in the form of God giving people over to sinfully do what they want to do. God's wrath is revealed presently in God giving people over to live in the sin they want to commit with all its consequences. In effect, God says, you love your sin so much, you exchange my glory for that filth? Fine. Live in it and bear its consequences. God's wrath is revealed in the wickedness and godlessness itself of those who suppress the truth. The truth that the one true God should be honored and esteemed and worshipped as God. Now, Verses 24 to 32 describes in more detail the ways in which people have suppressed the truth of God and draws out some of the consequences. And what we're going to see, and I'm following Moo very closely here, is that there is an ever-escalating pattern of human sin slash human idolatry and divine retribution. You can see this on your handout. I've listed it there for you. Paul uses three generally parallel sequences to make his point. And if we're able to see this big picture, this, this bird's eye view of Romans chapter 1, this is going to go a long way to helping us understand the text. I'm taking the time I am to set this up because it's essential. What is the divine reaction to humanity's universal rejection of God's revelation in nature? Here's the answer. God gives them over. Verse 1, 21 to 24. People exchange... Note that word, exchange, the glory of God for idols. What's the divine reaction, the retribution? God gives them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Verses 25 to 27, people exchange, note that word, the truth of God for a lie. 
and worship and serve created things rather than the creator. The divine reaction? God gives them over to unnatural sexual lusts, unnatural burning desire, thus receiving in themselves the just penalty of their error. Verses 28 to 31. People do not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. God responds in retribution. How? God gives them over to a depraved mind and societal sins of inhumanity against one another. Brothers and sisters, the Lord, through his apostle Paul, is teaching us that all sexual immorality and all the inhumanity of man against his fellow man that pervades this fallen world and all of its terrible manifestations has its roots in the rejection of the true God in favor of God's of our own making. What we're seeing so clearly is that idolatry is really the root and the essence of sin. That's the message of Romans 1. And this is the foundation Paul sets in the opening chapter for the most important letter letter ever written in the history of the world. This is the foundation, his opening salvo, right? This is Paul's sketch of the entire world outside of Jesus Christ. Turn on the evening news. Open up a newspaper. Walk down Young Street. Walk down Church Street. What we're seeing is Romans 1 writ large. We're seeing God's wrath being presently revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppressed the truth God has made plain to them about himself in creation. What we're reading in Romans 1 is that God, handing people over to the bondage of their sinful desires for the degrading of their bodies, one with another, is God's just response to their refusal to honor him or give him thanks as they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. What we're seeing here is divine retribution for idolatry. And this certainly includes heterosexual degradation. Do not make the mistake of getting on your heterosexual straight high horses and galloping around Romans 1. We're right in the middle of this, all of us. Fornication, adultery, rape, incest, pornography... That all falls outside God's divine intention, and God sets his face against it. But verse 24 is also setting us on a trajectory that includes homosexual, unnatural, bodily degradation. Paul tells us that a dark exchange has taken place. Look at verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God, that is, the reality, the fact of God, as he has revealed himself in creation. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, the lie of idolatry, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Verse 26, because of this, because of this dark exchange of the true God for idols, God gave them over to shameful lusts. And this is picking up on a theme that we saw in verse 24. Sinful desires, 
sexual impurity, bodily degradation. So now, just in case we missed it, twice in two verses, it's not a typo, we see that the divine penalty for idolatry, the present wrath of God revealed from heaven, is being given over by God into sexual sin. That, brothers and sisters, is a fundamental truth of life on this planet. But I don't think it's a fundamental truth people in our churches know. It's a basic understanding of life, and we don't know it. That must change. One plus one equals two, and the divine penalty for exchanging the glory and truth of God for other things is being given over by God into sexual sin. And we need to be thinking about this fact as we're waiting in line at the grocery store and we're reading all those disgusting article titles on the cover of Cosmo. Or when we catch ourselves bopping along to a pop song celebrating sexual promiscuity. Or when we see all the scantily clad, sexually charged advertisements and billboards. Or when we want to dress sexily for work or a party. Or when we see a prostitute and her pimp on the street corner. Or we're attempted to look at porn or fornicate or have an affair or go to a bathhouse. The sexual immorality of human society from the beginning of the world and continuing up to the present day is a manifestation of God's wrath which also means God is not in heaven wringing his hands as if all this sexual filth were somehow outside his control. God doesn't miss a trick. He is sovereign over evil. And his purposes and judgment are being worked out presently, even as idolaters who suppress the truth of God revealed in nature are experiencing the height of illicit sexual ecstasy. Friends, in this sex-obsessed culture we inhabit, this is truth Christians must, must understand. And these are words of truth a dying world must, must hear. Who's going to tell them? The very thing people love most. What they are exchanging the glory of God for is the very punishment God hands them over to. Man. Although they know God's righteous decree, verse 32, that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And of course, if there is no repentance, there's no grace, no cross, this all finally culminates in hell, eternal hell. And this is the sentence of condemnation under which all people outside of Jesus Christ stand. So I ask, why is homosexual behavior and relationships, why is it sinful? And maybe this is an issue you're struggling with or someone you love. Maybe every part of you is screaming, I don't want to deny who I am for one second more. 
This is how God made me. Well, what does God say in his authoritative word? What does our creator say? Verse 26. Because of this, because of this exchange of God for idols, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lusts for one another. And by his using the word natural, Paul is saying that females having sex with females and males having sex with males is a violation of God's created order in Genesis 1 and 2. Homosexuality is yet another indication of humanity's departure from true knowledge and worship of God. So let's slow right down. All right? I want to draw your attention to this now. As far as this breakout session is concerned, uh, this is the most important part of the text. And we need to pay close attention to the words Paul is using. And at this point, I'm following uh, Robert Gagnon's excellent, excellent book, The Bible and Homosexual Practice. I'm following this with plagiarizing fidelity. Uh, there is unanimous consent. This, this is the best theological treatment on homosexuality in print. It's, it's a beast, though. Um, the book I would recommend to your average lay Christian or unbeliever who has questions about what does the Bible really teach about homosexuality is that very book by Kevin DeYoung, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? It's for sale at the bookstore. You should, I would, if I were the Pope, the Protestant Pope, I would say all of us need to read this book. It's absolutely fantastic. But if you're feeling brave, go for this one too. Um, the verb exchanged in verse 26. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. If we look at verse 23 and 25, we can see that that word has already been used twice in this passage to depict humanity's fall into idolatry, right? Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of, of the immortal God for images. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things. And now, in verse 26, it's being used to characterize this tragic reversal in sexual practice. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Natural sexual relations have been replaced, they've been exchanged with sexual, uh, sexual relations that are against nature against what we read God calls very good in the creation narrative of Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, uh, there are all sorts of literary echoes and allusions between Genesis 1 and 2, those days of sinless, pre-fall perfection, and what we're reading in Romans 1. We see that in the words in verse 20, ever since the creation of the world, in verse 25, God is called the creator. Also, and, and this does not come out in the NIV or ESV translations, but there is a link between Romans uh, 1.23, which refers to 
idols in the likeness of the image of a mortal human and of birds and of four-footed animals and reptiles. That's the stilted, literalistic rendition of the Greek. And Genesis 1.26, when God says, let us make humans uh, according to our image and likeness and let them rule over the birds and the cattle and the reptiles. That, that echo, that illusion is very deliberate. And as we're reading Romans 1, the Apostle Paul wants us to be thinking of the creation account. Because the Apostle Paul is contrasting those two very different periods in salvation history. Also, if there's any Greek geeks following along in your Greek New Testament, notice that Paul denotes the sexes in verses 26 and 27 not as uh, females and males. Or no, he, he, rather, it's actually, it is in the Greek, females and males. Uh, Thelus are saying not women and men. It's males, females. I know the NIV and ESV translations, um, they, they translate these words men and women, but Gagnon argues it would be better translated males and females because it's a deliberate textual echo. It follows the style of Genesis 127. Male and female, he created them. And the Greek bears that out. So, what are the implications for this? What's Paul getting at? Why is homosexual behavior and relationships sin? Because both idolatry and same-sex intercourse rejects God's verdict that what was made and arranged in the pre-fall paradise of Genesis 1 and 2 was very good. As Genesis 1.31 says, God declares it to be good. This is a rejection of that. It's very important we see the connection. Instead of recognizing our indebtedness to God, in whose likeness we are made, and exercising dominion over the animal kingdom, instead, humans worship statues made in their own likeness, and even the likeness of animals. It's a rebellious, idolatrous exchange. And in the same, it's the same thing with homosexuality. Instead of acknowledging that God has made them male and female and had confined legitimate sexual intercourse to opposite sex pairings, humans denied the transparent complementarity of their sexuality by engaging in sex with the same sex, females with females, males with males. And this is a truth we encounter multiple times in the scripture. And this is why I was pressing for the pastors in this room, if there are any, to preach step number two. It is impossible to think about sexual immorality apart from an appeal to the creation text in Genesis. That's where it begins. That's the, that's the fountainhead. That's the foundation. Which is why, in his letter to Corinth, in chapter 6, 16, uh, when Paul is discussing people in the church having sex with prostitutes, he appeals to Genesis 2, 24. The two will become one flesh. In the same way, when Jesus criticized divorce and remarriage, he cited Genesis 1.27. The same text Paul has in the background when critiquing same-sex intercourse. God made them male and female. And Genesis 2.24, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Any assessment of sexual immorality, gay or straight, ultimately has in view the creation narrative. Genesis 1 and 2 are the key texts. How things were in the garden 
when God declared it to be very good, that is the standard from which we have sinfully departed. In God's view, what's wrong, first and foremost, with two females or two males having sex is the same sexness of the erotic act. It's an act that was intended by God to be a union of complementary sexual others, according to Genesis 1 and 2. It's against nature. Females exchanging sex with males for sex with females, males leaving behind sex with women and yearning for sex with other males. That's what's the issue here. And so Paul argues in Romans 1 that even Gentiles, people who do not have access to the scriptures, have enough knowledge in creation, in nature, to know that same-sex unions represent a non-complementary sexual pairing, an unnatural union, a violation of the Creator's will for His creation. They may, people may jump up and down, denying that vociferously, but God's word never lies. Verse 32, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they do not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Okay, I need to start landing the plane at this point. Let me, let me summarize in a very simple fashion what we've learned. And even in this summary, I've, I've received a lot of help, uh, this time from John Piper. Why is homosexual behavior and relationships sinful? What we've just learned is that the Bible sets up at the beginning of creation, before the fall, that one man and one woman become one flesh. That's God's way of doing sexuality. It's a man and a woman created in beautifully complementary ways so that they form one flesh. And to try to do it another way, that's a distortion. It's a corruption. It's a dysfunction of the way God made it. It's unnatural. Uh, But we can go deeper still. Deep down, there is a kind of idolatry involved in same-sex relationships that is very profound. Piper makes a good point. Have you ever asked yourself, why is Paul focusing on lesbianism and homosexuality in these verses? Why not lying or theft or 1,000 other sins? Why this? Does Paul have it in for gay people? Is he a homophobe? The reason Paul focuses on homosexuality in these verses is because it's the most vivid dramatization in this life of the profound connection between the disordering of our worship of God and the disordering of our sexual lives. Remember Ephesians 5, 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. What this means 
is from the beginning, marriage existed to represent or picture or dramatize Christ's relation to his bride, the church. In this drama, the male husband represents Christ. And he is to love his female wife as Christ loved the church, sacrificially and for her good. The female wife represents the church. And she is to submit to her male husband in all things as the church submits to Jesus. And sex, as Denny Burke reminds us, sex is only to occur within the bounds of marriage between one male husband and one female wife because the purpose of marriage is to glorify Jesus, to shine a light on his redemptive love for his people and the glory of that sexual union is in the gospel union that it signifies. And God means for the beauty of our worship of him to be dramatized in the right ordering of our sexual lives in that marriage context and and only in that marriage context. So obviously, this all carries over into everything we see in step number two. Again, Teachers in the church, preachers, brothers, preach those texts. But there is a satanic mirror image. We've all exchanged the glory of God, the truth of God, for idolatry in all its various forms. Right? Not just homosexuals. We've all suppressed the truth with our wickedness. And the beauty of our worship of God has been destroyed. Therefore, in judgment, God decrees that this disordering of our relation to him be dramatized or pictured in the disordering of our sexual relations with each other. And since the right ordering of our relationships to God in worship is dramatized, by heterosexual union within the covenant of marriage, the disordering of our relationship to God is dramatized by the breakdown of that heterosexual union. That includes every kind of sexual sin, but homosexuality is the most vivid form of that breakdown. Marriage between one male and one female is a portrait of Christ in the church. Homosexuality is a portrait of human idolatry. And this is in line with what G.K. Beale writes. The fitting punishment for malfunction in worshiping God is malfunction in other relationships, homosexuality and lesbianism. The idol worshiper's unnatural relationships with others resembles their unnatural relationship with God. It's a picture. 27b, men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, sometimes people ask, is AIDS the judgment of God on homosexuality? 
Uh, is that what this verse is talking about? No, it's not. Uh, the Greek text makes it quite clear that homosexual practice itself is seen as the due penalty of their error. Robert Gagnon paraphrases the verse well, receiving in themselves the payback, which was necessitated by their straying from the truth of God evident to them in nature. The sexual disordering of our lives, most vividly seen in homosexuality, though not only there, is the judgment of God upon the human race because we have exchanged the glory of God for other things as is AIDS and cancer and arthritis and Alzheimer's and every other disease and every other futility and misery in the world, including death. And that is the context into which God introduces the saving righteousness of Jesus Christ, free for all as a gift in his glorious gospel. As Piper reminds us, the history of the world can be summed up in one sentence. Sinful human beings exchange God and his glory for other things. And the whole dreadful parade of sins we see plaguing humanity has its roots in the soil of this idolatry. And what we're seeing going on out there is the present wrath of God revealed against the idolatry of mankind. But despite all our sin, despite all our rebellion and idolatry, despite the fact that no one seeks after God and no one is righteous, yet God still graciously saves sinners. And this is the good news Christians proclaim, that we must proclaim, brothers and sisters, to a dying world. That 2,000 years ago, the saving righteousness of God was revealed in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for Jews and Gentiles, gay and straight people alike. But first, as we just learned in our last session, we have to know the bad news that the good news counteracts. We need to bring theological clarity to biblical sexuality as a whole, not just homosexuality. And by God's grace, I pray that this session will play some small part in helping us along that road.